This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So um, I went on vacation and I found out about a thing and then I came back and I don't want vacation to be over. So we're going to talk about that thing. <laughs> <laughs> this happens to both of us from time to time. Like yeah. even, even if I go on vacation and I think, okay, I'm just going to take a breather and not not think about work-related things. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be walking around and find some fascinating thing that then becomes an episode of the podcast. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. I was so sworn, because there's been a lot of stuff going on. I've been very busy and very stressed, and I was so sworn that I was not going to deal with work stuff for the week that we were away. And then about three days in, I was like, oh, dang it! <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally doing it! <laughs> so, uh, my beloved and I recently went to Hawaii, yeah. Heaven. It's one of my favorite places on earth. I'm very attached to it. I cry when I leave. Um, and the resort that we were at uh, had a lot of Menehune theming uh, because you're at Disney's Aulani. They have a whole thing about it. And there are these like little figures that are everywhere in playful poses and they're kind of hidden in plants and in corners. And we had been talking to one of the staff uh, about other things and my husband asked about it. And that gentleman described the Minahune as Hawaii's leprechauns. And then one of his colleagues that was nearby was like, that is way too simple. Like, that's not really right. You're telling these people something that they're going to not understand later. Um, so then I was like, okay, break it down. Uh, and then I wanted to go do a bunch of reading about it. So here's the thing. This becomes one of those history pieces that is very tricky to examine for a couple of reasons. For one, the Minahune will tell you exactly what they are and I shouldn't have used the word exactly because there is no exact, but uh, they're part of an oral history. And of course, that in and of itself is sort of a, a place where it's easy for facts to get a little shifty. And then once it starts to appear in books and other media that's written by outsiders, 
this whole thing is often sensationalized or misinterpreted. Um, for example, there are episodes of shows like Finding Bigfoot that talk about the Minahune, and I, I'm not throwing any shade to that show if you love it, but that is definitely more geared toward enticing viewers with tantalizing myth stories that are framed as possibly real, uh, more than maybe sort of really delving into like anthropological reasons for, for mythology and whatnot. And there was actually another show, and I'm forgetting the name of it, that I found on the History Channel that kind of had the same even impetus point as me, where it's like, we're at Disney's Aulani, and they have these things, and we're going to search it out. But even so, it wasn't, uh, and which seemed lovely. But again, it gets into this weird interpretation thing where you want to get viewers in, and so you maybe, like, their, their cuts to commercial clearly were all cliffhangers about these little people were real, uh, so we don't want to do that. Uh, the other problem is that this story has also been used as part of tourism branding. It's even, Minahune have even appeared on, like, product branding, and it's part of this sort of casual storytelling that gets told if you go to any, like, Hawaii uh, tourism site, they probably have something about it. And so it gets kind of put in this um, narrative that's about being really fun, but that sort of steps it farther and farther away from any sort of historical record that we actually have. So I thought it would be fun to actually really delve into this sort of legend and myth area and talk about why it continues to be a thing, how it has shifted, etc. So that's what we're doing today. You guys get to come on Holly's extended I Can't Bear to Be Back in Reality vacation episode. <laughs> So first, we will talk about the legend of the Minehune. It's estimated that the Hawaiian islands were first occupied by humans somewhere between 300 and 800 CE. So these earliest inhabitants arrived in canoes, having traveled from the Marquesas Islands, which is about 2,300 miles south of the Hawaiian Islands, so also there in the Pacific Ocean. For a sense of distance, right, as a, a modern-day flight, that would still take hours and hours and hours, and that is with the benefit of uh, modern technology and guidance systems. So this journey by canoe from the Marquesas Islands, presumably navigating via the stars, would have been no joke whatsoever. And those early settlers landed on Hawaii's big island, and then using the plants and other resources that they brought with them, they set up an agrarian culture. A second wave of Polynesian peoples is believed to have arrived in the Hawaiian Islands around 1100. And this wave was from Tahiti. And sometimes it's described as an invasion. Their, their arrival is characterized as one in which the newcomers conquered the inhabitants who were descended from that earlier group from the Marquesas Islands. Yeah, sometimes uh, it sounds like there was some aggression, and other times it's just described as... Uh, that previous group was basically terrified of these newcomers and kind of ran. Uh, but according to the legend, the tiny people known as the Minahune were on Hawaii before either the Marquesas or the Tahitian Islanders. And we're going to talk about how these three groups actually all tie together in this myth a little bit later in the show. So these tiny folks described as being two or three feet tall, very approximately a meter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll see a, a range in there, too. Some will say as small as six inches even, but most of the averages are between two and three feet. 
Yeah. And they're said to have lived on the Hawaiian Islands before any humans arrived there. Sometimes they're described as an ongoing hidden forest culture that still exists today with sightings still being reported from time to time. And there are a number of different stories about how the Minahune may have arrived in the islands. Many of them involve some kind of nature-linked uh, polytheistic spiritual stories that are common in the Hawaiian religion. While the Minahune are sometimes described as a sort of Hawaiian analog to creatures like leprechauns, as I mentioned in the intro, or elves, fairies, or gnomes, there is a really significant distinction. And it's that Minahune are not generally described as having any sort of magical powers. They are just small people who live in the forest and have an incredible work ethic. And the Minahune are described as skilled craftspeople. According to legend, they build at night, and if anyone were to see them at work, the work would be abandoned. So this really reminds me, for an analog that is maybe not so far off base, the story of the shoemaker and the elves. Very similar. While the most extreme versions of this late-night work myth say that the Minahune would build entire structures overnight, other versions merely suggest that they just worked at night, but there could be successive nights of labor on a given project. Yeah, it kind of depends who, uh, you know, obviously some of the older, more deeply mythological ones suggest that they had, like, one night to complete huge things. Uh, that strains credulity. Um, and they have been credited with building everything from temples to canoes. But we are going to talk about four specific sites that are attributed to them. Uh, two we'll kind of talk about very briefly, the third a little bit longer, and then the fourth we'll get into more detail. But at the end of those four, you will see why those were the ones we chose. The first is Necker Island. On Necker Island, which is a small northwestern island in Hawaii, there are 33 shrines that are made of stone, and they're often called artifacts of the Minahune. According to legend, Necker Island was the last refuge of the Minahune as they fled other Polynesian peoples who had moved to the islands. In 1988, Necker Island was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And on the big island, uh, Kahalu'u Bay is famed as a surfing center, but it has its own connection to the Minehune. There is a breakwater in the bay called the Kapa'oka Minehune. I have probably pronounced that wrong, even though I had people from Hawaii pronounce it for me while I was there. <laughs> uh, and this is a long line of stonework rock formations that may have at one point extended to completely close off the bay. And according to legend, the Menehune wanted to make the bay into one big fish pond. Uh, But a high priest wanting to preserve the great surfing there in the bay tricked the Menehune into halting their work by having a rooster crow in the night. And so according to this story, the Menehune, having heard the rooster, believed that the morning had arrived, and so they left their labor, never to return to it. In 1974, the area around the bay was added to the National Register of Historic Places also. The third spot is the Alecoco Fish Pond, and that's about a half mile inland from uh, Nawiliwili Harbor on the southeast coast of the island of Kauai. And this pond represents early fish farming. It is made up of a dirt wall with a stone face that cuts off a river bend and creates a fish pond. It's really quite clever. Uh, and the wall extends about five feet uh, you know, a little less than two meters above the water, and it's four feet, so like 1.3 meters wide. It's believed that this pond is more than a thousand years old, and that stone-faced wall, according to legend, was built by the Minahune. It's the oldest fish pond on the island of Kauai, 
And it's described in its National Register application as, quote, the best example of an inland fish pond in the entire state. So that document, by the way, also mentions the Minnehune as its builders. And this lush, vegetation-friendly Alicoco fish pond, which is also known as the Menehune fish pond, was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1973. We're going to talk about a structure that's sometimes used as evidence of Menehune construction. But before we get to that, we are going to pause and have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Also on the island of Kauai is perhaps the most famous of the Menehune's attributed works, and that is the Kiki Aola Ditch in Waimea. And this irrigation ditch sits at the meeting point of two rivers, the Waimea and the Makawele, and it's about 7,000 feet inland. This ditch was built, again, according to an application for it to be made a national historic site in 1984, as a means of irrigating taro crops. Taro root is used as one of the mainstays of Hawaiian food. Poi is made from beating the root into a paste after it's been baked. If you've never had poi, it's fascinating. I love it. Not everybody does. It's one of those things you can uh, add a lot of other stuff to. We went on a really fun um sailing canoe while we were there and we ended up in a whole big discussion with the crew about poi and how they each eat it which was hilarious because some of them grossed each other out with their choices um 
And according to legend, this project, the Kikia Ola Ditch, uh, was built by the Menehune under a directive from King Ola of Waimea, and his name is the Ola in Kikia Ola. And while it is called a ditch, uh, that is uh, maybe conjuring not the correct images, it is actually an interesting feat of engineering. So not only did this causeway transport water at a level above that of the river, but it also turns a corner at a cliff's edge in the process. And this construction uses a jointed stone dry masonry technique that isn't like anything else in the area. The stones used for it are cut with squared off smooth edges, and they fit together really tightly without using any mortar. The legend is that the Menehune lined up side by side over a seven-mile stretch to hand each of the stones down the line, sort of like a bucket brigade, from the quarry site to the construction location of the actual ditch. In all likelihood, whoever built the ditch used stone that was closer to the actual area. Yeah, this is one of those things that uh, there was like a survey that was published in the early part of the 20th century that was like the closest match to this stone is seven miles away. But even in that same document, it's like, well, there's also some that's closer. (laughs) But I guess it was maybe not as good as of a match. Um, But the ditch was first referenced in writing in 1792. And it is mentioned in the diary of Captain George Vancouver, who traveled through the Waimea Valley that year. And based on his writing, he and his team were really quite impressed with this structure. They wrote, quote, As we proceeded, our attention was arrested by an object that greatly excited our admiration, and at once put an end to all conjecture on the means to which the natives resorted for the watering of their plantations. A lofty perpendicular cliff now presented itself, which, by rising immediately from the river, would effectively have stopped our further progress into the country had it not been for an exceedingly well-constructed wall of stones and clay about 24 feet high, raised from the bottom by the side of the cliff, which not only served as a pass into the country, but also as an aqueduct to convey the water brought thither by great labor from a considerable distance." the place where the river descends from the mountains affording the planters an abundant stream for the purpose to which it is so advantageously applied. This wall did not less credit to the mind of the projector than to the skill of the builder, terminated the extent of our walk. From whence we returned through the plantations whose highly improved state impressed us with a very favorable opinion of the industry and ingenuity of the inhabitants." By the late 1800s, the nickname Menehune Ditch was being used in reference to this structure. And as a random aside, in a book about historical irrigation that was written in 1933, Holly found an offhand mention of a theory that a Russian military detachment in a fort near the mouth of the river built the ditch in 1817. The same book points out that since Vancouver's description predates that by a couple of decades, this theory doesn't hold water. I'm Holly, so sorry. I Holly hate Holly is apologizing for the pun. That she... I hate puns, and yet there it is. It, that was my fault. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I had not seen that Russian military detachment theory anywhere else, and it just kind of popped up in this really sort of obscure book about, about Hawaiian irrigation history. I was like, what? what? I couldn't find anything else on it. So uh, one account of this ditch's creation written by Westerner William Hyde Rice in his 1923 book, Hawaiian Legends, uh, says, quote, Ola, the king, obtained the promise of the Menehune that they would build a water lead at Waimea if all the people stayed in their houses 
the dogs muzzled, and the chickens shut in calabashes so that there would be no sound on the appointed night. This was done, and the Menehune completed the water course before daybreak. Only 100 feet, or about 30.5 meters, of the 7,000-foot length of this ditch shows this ancient stonework. There's another 100 feet of bermed ditch that is also believed to be from the original work on the structure, but it doesn't have that stonework. A road was built along the ditch in 1920, and during that time, a lot of modifications were made, really without regard to historical preservation. Additionally, there are pieces of stonework that were taken by residents and construction workers who were working on that road to use them for other uses. So significant pieces of the original ditch have been lost. The ditch does still function as a form of irrigation, though. And as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, an application was filed in 1984 for this ditch to be added to the National Register of Historic Locations, and that application was approved. So that keeps coming up, and if you're counting, that makes four sites on the National Register that are attributed either in part or in total to the work of the Menehune. So this is really impressive. We don't generally see a lot of applications for official historical designations that credit uh, a, an element of mythology for their creation. Like, that's not a thing that comes up over and over. <laughs> um, but there are a couple of explanations that have been offered to explain this whole myth from the perspective of what really happened. And um, I will say, before we get into these explanations, they're not ultra-satisfying, so just... <laughs> Um, so one theory that lends the Menehune myth a little bit of real-world validation, though, is that it may have been bolstered by encounters with Japanese travelers to Hawaii. In a 2009 article written for Smithsonian by oceanographer Curtis Ebesmeyer and journalist Eric Sigliano, the pair describe how currents of the Pacific have been landing Japanese mariners at unintended locations for thousands of years. In the course of the article, they write, quote, the Japanese presence in Hawaii may go back much further. Hawaiian legend recounts that the first Polynesian settlers there encountered diminutive minehune, uh, little people, marvelous craftsmen who still dwell in deep forests and secret valleys. At the time, the Japanese were more than a foot shorter than the average Polynesians and adept at many strange technologies, from firing pottery and spinning silk to forging metal that might indeed have seemed like marvels. So it's possible uh, that this myth may have been bolstered by at least sightings of these lost Japanese mariners who were maybe camping or trying to make their way, but that still seems like a really unlikely source for this whole idea. That yeah, seems like a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. In a moment, we're going to talk about an intriguing recent discovery that's often relayed as part of the evidence for the Minihune, but we're going to take another quick sponsor break before we get to that. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport 
that we can't help but love. So do us a favor, download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A recent addition to efforts to corroborate stories of the Minahune is Homo floresiensis. This is also sometimes called the Hobbit. This is a recently discovered early human. Skeletal remains were discovered on the island of Flores in Indonesia in 2003, and that discovery was made public in 2004. So this species was tiny, about three and a half feet tall, just a little over a meter. They had small brains about the size of an orange, large teeth and large feet, which is how they got this hobbit nickname. Fossil evidence indicates that they used stone tools and they hunted, and tools found at the site have been dated back as far as 190,000 years ago. They might have used fire for cooking based on charred stegodon bones that were found in the cave. And the female skeleton uh, that was found in 2003 by a team that was actually there trying to track Homo sapiens migration from Asia to Australia uh, was named LB1. That's after Liang Bua Cave where it was found. And that skeleton was dated to about 80,000 years ago. And since the discovery of LB1 as part of that bigger thing, it wasn't like these happened way later. They were all kind of in a, in a big discovery arc. Uh, Remains of another 12 separate individuals have also been recovered, with dating ranging from 100,000 to 60,000 years uh, of age for the various specimens. But the only place that Homo floresiensis has been found is in that one cave. So we don't know if this was a species that evolved in isolation or if they traveled elsewhere or anything. And this was, again, in Indonesia. Naturally, though, this has raised ideas that Homo floresiensis might be linked to the Minahune in some way. Because this discovery is still quite new, there is a lot of debate about the find, about its meaning in the Earth's timeline. Initially, it was believed that these uh, people were wiped out by a volcanic eruption about 12,000 years ago. But more recently, it's been suggested that it was really modern humans traveling through Indonesia as far back as 50,000 years ago that led to their extinction. And there are, we should say, scientists that believe that classifying this discovery as a new species is in fact wrong, and that this is a case of modern human society that had a mutation or a disorder in the small, isolated gene pool that they had just living on this one island. There is uh, also on that same island a species of pygmy elephant that similarly had, uh, you know, uh, a, an adaptation or a, a mutation, depending on how you want to look at it, from being isolated. So they kind of use that as evidence of like, hey, this was probably also happening with these humans here. So there are lots of stories and myths that are connected to the Minahune, and a lot of them are really compelling. These explanations of Japanese travelers and Homo floresiensis offer some, you know, pretty interesting ideas connected to the story. Yeah, there are interesting ways to rationalize it. But the problem that keeps coming up is that there is literally no hard evidence of an actual two to three foot tall race of forest people on the Hawaiian islands. The evidence that's often used as proof of the existence of the Menehune 
in that form is real in that it exists. So like that pond and that ditch that are named after them, those are real structures, but there hasn't ever been any evidence or finds that show actual short forest-dwelling humans on the Hawaiian islands. One possibility that I think is really interesting is that these stories actually predate human arrival from the Hawaiian Islands and that they traveled along with Hawaii's early settlers as part of their own cultural history. So they are like a belief that goes so far back that it came to Hawaii with its first human inhabitants. Yeah, and there is also a theory that that first wave of Marquesas Island settlers built those various structures that have been attributed to the Menehune and that when the second wave of settlers from Tahiti arrived on the island several hundred years later, they found that stonework ditch, the stone wall, etc., and they developed the myth of the Menehune over time to explain the existence of them. One of the other aspects to unraveling this myth is linguistic. There were three clearly delineated classes in both Hawaiian and Tahitian early history. Tahiti's lowest class was called Menehune. Since that Tahitian wave of settlers is usually described as taking over the lands of the original group who first came to Hawaii, it's also possible that there's this multi-layered aspect to the blurring of the Menehune story. It's likely that they considered the people they conquered to be Menehune, or the lowest status. So it's not too far of a jump to consider that over the years and over all the retellings, especially as a, in an oral history context, this meaning of lower transformed uh, into referring to their height instead of to their social class, leading to the idea that they were physically smaller people. But perhaps uh, the most likely and something that some historians really put forth as the actual source of all of this is the theory that the oral history was probably misinterpreted when it was retold by outsiders who were wishing to transfer it to the written record. For example, in that 1923 book we referenced earlier called Hawaiian Legends by William Hyde Rice that we referenced, um, the Menehune are described in pretty quaint storytelling style terms. And while the author is clearly intending to relay a myth, the manner in which he writes also makes it seem as though he's stating facts. So here's an excerpt. The Menehune were small people, but they were broad and muscular and possessed great strength. Contrary to common belief, they were not possessed of any supernatural powers, but it was solely the account of their tremendous strength and energy and their great numbers that they were able to accomplish the wonderful things they did. These pygmy people were both obedient and industrious, always obeying their leaders. To further complicate matters, Rice then goes on to describe all the places that you can see the paths and trails and other structures of the Menehune, and this blend of fact and fiction writing styles seems to have fed back into the modern version of the myth. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it struck me so strongly reading his, his, uh, account that he doesn't delineate between when he is telling the story and when he is relaying factual evidence. And it gets really blurry. Yeah. Um, this, this reminds me of that episode we did that was all about ghost ships and how there was a fictionalized version of one of those ghost ship stories that people int interpreted as fact. And even now, like, you find the facts, facts in quotation marks from that fictional story as the description of how it happened. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that Rice was one of the men who combined business and politics in the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So his retelling of these myths was, whether consciously or unconsciously, almost certainly colored 
by his perceptions of the Hawaiian people, as he himself was a member of an Anglo family that was living on the islands and acquiring a great deal of land and power, often at the expense of the native islanders. So it does not seem likely that there was a literal race of tiny nocturnal people living in the forests of Hawaii, building things in the middle of the night. But there may well have been a group of skilled laborers whose work was attributed to a mythical people I mean, someone built all these structures that we talked about earlier in the episode. Yeah, to me, it makes the most sense that that uh, that Tahitian word manahune has shifted over time and caused this confusion between lower class and lower height. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we'll probably never know. This is so far back in history. And I don't want to rob anyone of the fun of the stories of the Minehune because it's very, very endearing stuff and it's really charming and fun. And every, I mean, mythology is like wonderful and powerful and has great meaning. Uh, but it is one of those things that merits a little bit of examination, I think. Do you also have listener mail for us? I do. It's listener mail that kind of cracked me up. Uh, this is from our listener, Kristen. She writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I just listened to your podcast about Pauline Sabin. You mentioned that Pauline outlived multiple husbands and was buried next to her second husband and not her third. I had to giggle at your discussion over how to choose which husband to be buried next to. My great-grandmother solved this dilemma in the most delightful way. When her first husband died, burial plots were purchased for her whole family, which included her and their young son. She remarried a few years later and eventually outlived that husband as well. Already owning burial plots, her second husband was interred at the other end of the row of three. So when my grandmother passed, she was laid to rest in the plot between the two. I can't imagine a more clever solution than to choose both. Uh, incidentally, she says, I live in Nebraska. Uh, her child goes to an elementary school that is named after Pauline's grandfather, Jay Sterling Morton. Uh, that's a really <laughs> fun story. I, it is one of those things that I always wonder about. Um, it, it's a discussion that has come up in my family from time to time, and we kind of giggle about it, and then people feel uncomfortable and shut it down. <laughs> um, so so I, uh, I'm glad to hear how somebody else's family handled it, uh, and that there's this cool connection to the story of Pauline Sabin there. So thank you, Kristen. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Uh, you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. We are on the web as mistinhistory.com. That's our website where you can visit all of the archives of every episode of the show ever of all time way before Tracy and I were ever here. But if you look at the shows that Tracy and I worked on, there will be show notes on those ones as well, so you can look at our sources if you want to do a little extra reading for yourself. Uh, We encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. 
Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.